वेलकम टू सन टॉक दिन टॉकस अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द इंटरक्शन एंड रियक्शंस विल थिंक अबाउट इंटरक्शंस एंड इट्स स्पेशल केस रियक्शंस इन वेरियस काइंड ऑफ सिस्टम्स हाउ डू वेरियस लीगल कंसेप्चुअल सिस्टम्स इंटरैक्ट इन द रियल वर्ल्ड can sub parts of oceans be neatly delineated and classified what is the difference between the notions of land and sea and how do they interact what are the necessary conditions for chemical reactions to occur what makes certain interactions reactions can solids produce reactions will we ever reach the center of the earth will be fully solve the specificity problem for most systems and would there ever be a general meta theory of reactivity we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today professor vedanathan ramamurthy he is a chemist and is currently at the university of miami his research interest is largely in the area of photochemistry is also the editor of an american chemical society journal langmuir dr sarabhi ranganathan she teaches law at university of cambridge she is also the deputy director of the lauter park center and dr d shankar he is a physical oceanographer and is based at national institute of oceanography in goa He works on ocean circulation and its impact on marine life and climate. So, Murthy, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? Um, obviously, wearing a chemist hat, there are all these things around us and in the world, and on the surface, they seem very distinct from each other. But you know, they're not. Um, reacting with each other all the time there's there's it seems like there needs to be a certain set of conditions for reactions to happen for a few different compounds or things to come together and something new to get produced is there a way of thinking about that in a general way to say what leads to reactions happening or not happening is it just a case of energy levels what else is there can you help us get a hang of that to begin with and then we'll broaden that and think of uh, other related questions okay so in order to think of a reaction especially from a chemist's perspective it is between molecules so first you need to know what is why do you say between molecules it could be between two elements or yeah okay in principle sure. it can be between two atoms yeah or it could be between two molecules but most of the time as a chemist we would be interested in between two big molecules atoms and things maybe the gas phase chemists or atmospheric uh science people would be interested in uh between two atoms so in terms of understanding a reaction you have to know what is a molecule and then why they want to interact and why do they want to change themselves from one to the other and what exactly when you say a reaction what is a reaction that is basically forming a new bond or breaking a bond that already exists that requires to know what is a bond so when two compounds are together or two two kinds of molecules are together 
Is there a way in which they could interact with each other without reacting and producing something new? Obviously, well, if they, yes. yeah, if they interact with each other, in principle, what happens is, if you think of a reaction which involves two atoms or two different molecules, they will have to collide. So the collisions are the first, that is the requirement. They have to come closer to each other. And so, you use the word collision in a very specific sense. They generally have to collide to produce heat energy or... Yeah, first of all, they, they, when they collide, the energy gets transferred from one to the other. So basically, the energies are building up on the molecule. So if it crosses a certain threshold, then the bond can break. The, if the bond breaks, eventually a new bond has to be formed because the when the bond breaks... A bond is made up of two electrons which are shared between two atoms in a molecule. So when it breaks, means the two electrons are separated, but they want to come back together. So they will come back. You the mean same two point. atoms are separated? Yeah, separated. Right. And then if they come back together as it is, then it, there is no change. If there is together and then there is some changes in shape or something, then it is a, a chemical reactions. So what about this question of whether, is there something before reactions? I mean, when molecules could just be together okay. without... So if the, if the molecules collide, so first of all, the, the first action is collision. Mm -hmm. Collision is the one which is going to build the energy on the molecule. Mm -hmm. When they collide, nothing may happen. It is just like two people colliding in a, a crowd. Right. They just uh, go away from each other. Right. So if they go away from each other, then there is no reaction. If, the, if they collide with some kind of uh, excess energy, then there can be new bonds being formed and the old bond, the other bonds can be broken. And how do you make uh, how do you make molecules collide with each other? The collision happens by itself because the when you say a molecule, it is not standing alone by uh, in the corner. So, so they are always are moving room. around. They are always moving around. So we are in this room, uh, Murthy, and there are all kinds of molecules in the uh, air. Yeah, but uh, uh, are there reactions happening in the room or they're just bumping off each if other? If you say reactions, is different from collisions. Reaction specifically means there is a change in the structure uh, of the molecule. When you say collision, it means it is bumping into each other. Probably an oxygen mo uh, molecule which was bumping against me, after maybe a minute afterwards, it goes against her, and then after the minute to, to, to you and to him. So it can be moving around the room without any reactions. On the other hand, if this oxygen is hitting me with a certain amount of threshold of energy, there is a small probability that it might interact with my skin or something else, and then it may result in some changes in the structure of the uh, whatever constitutes the skin or uh, something else. That is, so for a reaction, the molecule or the atom should have certain amount of energy it has to have. Which is like some kind of threshold energy. Yeah, threshold energy. We call them, in chemistry, we call them as activation energy. So we have some terms for these things. So if you have two compounds and molecules, and sorry to keep at it, you, for you to make them react with each other, it's primarily a process of increasing, somehow making the collision energy greater than the activation energy level. Okay, so one way to do it is by heating the system. So when you heat the system, the molecules, each time they collide, they will transfer at room temperature, let's say, let's assume it is one kilocalorie. And then on the other hand, if it is 100 degrees, it may be 10 kilocalorie each time they hit each other. 
So five times heating each other, it might result in 50 kilocalories. That may be plenty of energy for this bond to break. So that is one way, that is heating. What else? The other approach is you put, you put the energy in terms of light. Mm -hmm. When you put the energy in terms of light, a molecule doesn't have to collide. They can stay stationary at one place. And when they absorb the light, so it could be 100 kilocalories or 150 kilocalories or whatever. You can, you can pinpoint the energy because it depends on the wavelength. The energy is E is equal to H times mu. Mu is the frequency. H nu. Yeah. H mu. H is a Planck's constant. Mu is the frequency. So frequency is variable. So depending upon your light source, you can adjust the wavelength. And when you say light, Murthy, obviously mean just electromagnetic radiation with some wavelength. Yeah, correct. Right? Yeah. So you, you don't necessarily mean visible light being shown on it. It could be... The electromagnetic radiation can vary all the way from you know, radio, radio, radio yeah. frequency to X-ray and all this stuff. So, right. But each frequency has a different amount of energy. Right. X-ray can ionize a molecule. So when you say radio frequency, you can just only change a, a small thing like a spin. So it is uh, the frequency makes a big difference. For a chemical reaction, usually you use UV and visible. Mm. UV is like from 220 nanometers to like 350, and then 350 to 700, 800 nanometers. Is but the, obviously you won't go to infrared because the wavelength is too high, frequency is too low, not, not enough energy, is that? Yeah, but you, you will know how much energy you need or how, what the molecules may not absorb all the light that you put, put it on them. Right. Because they have they will take only the amount that they need. So if you have, the, there will be an absorption spectrum. It tells you from S0, S0 is the ground state, excited state. That means the electron has gone from one orbital to a different orbital. That requires a certain amount of energy. Yeah. So that energy is fixed. Yeah. So what will happen is the molecule will only absorb that much of energy. If you have yeah, variations of range of energies, light is, the room light is, you know, it puts out light from, let's say, 500 to 800 nanometers. The molecule will only absorb, let's say, 600 it will only absorb 600. And the rest of it is just scattered or just goes away? Yeah, well, uh, uh, whatever it's not absorbed, it may get scattered. Or it may just pass through. Interesting. Now, Sarabhi, obviously your world is very different. Presumably you don't think about light wavelengths and things of that nature, but in, in a certain kind of way, and, you know, we'll get to your work on oceans and so on a little while also after speaking with Shankar, but... If we think of it in a somewhat meta way to begin with, just, you know, we've thought of chemical systems a little bit, compounds coming together, but if you look at the world and compose it a little bit legally or in terms of what kind of legal systems exist and so on, is there a way of thinking about how they interact with each other? Because, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, uh, it's a different kind of beast. The, the field of law is not the same as a physical mm -hmm. force field. Um, but there's a way in which different kinds of legal systems could be simultaneously applicable or enforced in a certain kind of way. Now, is there a way of thinking about that, of how different legal systems might be thought of as reacting or interacting in some way? Sure, of course. I mean, all analogies to science are imperfect, though right. lawyers often do try to, I think the idea of trying to describe law as science is a big one, especially on the continent. So Germans like to think of themselves as doing legal science and right. not just law. But so with the caveat that all analogies are imperfect, of course, yes, you can think of lawmaking is a process 
to use your language of collisions and reactions, right? So if you want to change the law, you have to introduce new propositions, which will meet with, to, to the extent that they have to go anywhere, they have to meet with some sort of reaction from, they have to collide with preconceived existing understandings of the world. And then there has to be a reaction. And some and if there is a real reaction, there will be a debate and something new will be produced. So if you think of how philosophers have talked about this, they've talked about the present, the need to present a thesis, which will often meet with an antithesis, which will then produce a synthesis, to use the language right. of your, of Sintok, which is, an imperfect way of trying to analogize to this idea of collision and then reaction and which leading to the production of something quite new. With legal but systems... But when you, when you form mm -hmm. or when you try to come up with new law or modifications mm -hmm. to law and so on, is, is that in your mind um, a way of combining things or, or, or what happens there? It's often a way of... So new law comes from two or three different things, right? One is new law comes from actual changes in the perception of the world. So the idea is that the law is a way of imposing some a, a kind of normative cast over what is understood to be the reality of the time. So you take what you see in the world, you describe it, and then you, re you turn it into some sort of you give it a normative definition. You say what is a good or a bad. When the when your perception of the world changes, for example, when your perception of what is in the ocean changes, right. th that produces conditions for the law to change. That's one thing. Another way is not that your perception of the world has changed, but your perception of what the world should value has changed, and you try to then introduce that change. So you have, you have some kind of an end product in mind. You have some sort of usually... To solve for an end state. The interesting thing is that you might not always get the end product you want. So lawyers know that the secret to producing new law is often knowing that the ends have to be as undefined. I mean, you, you can define, you can control the process to some extent, but you will very often end up with something you hadn't quite expected. So in that sense, I guess it, it's not like chemistry in that you, you can very often, you don't know where the reactions will go or what the result will be in the end, which is why the analogy is completely imperfect, right? The, the political process is not like the natural process. Yeah. Um, what do you, Shankar, now, if you think of oceans, which obviously you've thought about in many ways, um, is that like one homogeneous thing? Are there many subsystems? How heterogeneous is it? How much do they interact with each other? Can you help us get a picture of that? And then we'll try and see whether we can link it up to other things. Well, it would depend on how you want to classify. A very simple classification is just uh, geographical. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Indian Ocean, and so on. But are there different kinds of systems? I mean, I know they belong, they, they are in different places, but yeah, as, as... That would be the first classification. But you take, for example, Atlantic, you could break it into the equatorial system, what is traditionally called the mid-latitude system, then you have a polar system. So this goes uh, according to uh, the latitude, and uh, there are dynamical differences mm. between them. How so? One important difference is the speed at which information is communicated. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a very concrete example. You take the 1982 El Nino, which is what brought a lot of funding into equatorial oceanography in the United States. Right. It was the biggest of uh, the century till the 97 El Nino. Now, the 82 El Nino, it, in, in, in El Nino, basically, you have... Uh, a wind trigger in the western or central Pacific. And they are waves. They are called Kelvin waves. They propagate along the equator. Right. All the way to the eastern Pacific. 
they reflect off the coast of Peru. And uh, when they reflect, energy goes uh, poleward. It goes towards Alaska and towards Chile. Now, this process takes place at a speed of about, say, two meters per second. So it's a very short time in which you get energy right across the Pacific and uh, all the way to San Francisco or Santiago. But then, after that, there are waves that propagate uh, westward. And the speed of these waves that are called Rossby waves, they decrease with increasing latitude. And they go they as one... They decrease with increasing latitude, so yeah. they become slower as they go up. Slower. As right. you go f- farther towards away the, from the equator, towards the, the speed pole. decreases. Right. And it goes as one by y squared, where y is the distance from the equator. Right. So to give you an example, if you are taking two meters per second, roughly, yeah. as the speed at the equator... It's a reverse exponential fall, in a way. Very sharp fall. Yeah. So at 10 north, which is still south of the United States, yeah. it would be about uh, 10, 12 centimeters per second. But if you go to 30 north, you are down by a factor of 9 right. or 10. So you're talking about a centimeter per second. So it takes a decade to cross the Pacific. So if you look at the impact of the 82 El Nino, which is around the time the Geosat altimeter became available, you can actually track it all the way across the Pacific because the signal is large. Mm. So you can actually track it from satellites. And in the, a decade later you can actually see what happened at the equator in 1982 in the Pacific, having an impact off the Kuroshio in Japan in uh, maybe 91 or 92. <laughs> it's actually been tracked. And it has an impact on the weather, that particular area of Japan. So that is a huge thing. The ocean, in some sense, you could look at it as the elephant in the room. Yeah. It has a huge memory. The atmosphere doesn't remember anything beyond about a week to 10 days. It's the ocean that captures the information and retains it and releases it slowly. This is still a slow release. It can retain information for centuries. How so? Uh, there's this uh, circulation that connects the deep ocean to the surface, and that has a time scale of centuries. So that memory so is very there, strong. So if there was a volcanic eruption or something in the seabed uh, 150 years ago, which is soft enough, not terribly crazy, you mean for it to reach the surface... No, what Not I'm talking of is uh, changes to the uh, surface circulation in the polar regions. Right. Very specifically around Greenland and in one place uh, near Antarctica, where water sinks. It cools, it uh, becomes heavier and it sinks. And that is the water that you will find, uh, whether it's from the Atlantic or from the Antarctic side. That's what you find at uh, the bottom of the ocean. And or when, in deep waters. And when there are these different kinds of phenomena and systems, do they also counteract and interact with each other? Or, uh, because there seems to be something highly determinate about, you know, something leaving somewhere and reaching somewhere else in um, 12 years and 15 years. Uh, are, are well, they some aspects of it is uh, reasonably well uh, predictable. Mm-hmm. You know roughly how much time it's going to take. But you have no idea how that wave is going to be affected by what's happening in the Pacific itself. Say, in the middle of the Pacific, uh, between San Francisco and uh, Tokyo. You have no idea what's going to happen in the intervening decade. So it's not that there's a wave that's propagating unimpeded. There's a lot that's happening in between. So that makes it difficult. You can't make a statement about what's going to happen 10 years later. In retrospect, you can trace things. That's easier. And our... uh 
looking at Earth more broadly, is the atmosphere interacting with the hydrosphere? It is. It is. Um, how? What's the? What is? What is that like? I mean, does the absolute rock bottom of the sea, the seabed, and so on, which we'll get to. Is that in any way interacting with the atmosphere or its uh, primary interaction with the higher parts of the ocean? The direct interaction would be near the surface. Hmm. Of course, and because that's where the... basic the... job of the circulation in both atmosphere and ocean is to reduce the equator-pole temperature difference. It's just that you're running an engine between the equator and the poles, right. trying <laughs> to cut down to the difference it. in temperature. And it's about 50% each. The ocean transports more in the tropics, and the atmosphere is more important in the higher latitudes. But roughly 50% each to the... So the atmosphere transport. is more important than the poles? Uh, in the mid-latitudes. The you have these extratropical cyclones. They do the job, while the large-scale ocean circulation, like the Gulf Stream and so on, they do the job in the tropics. So when... when And maybe you should talk a little bit about uh, how lawyers and people of your kind have gotten... Uh, involved in thinking about the ocean beds. Mm. But how do these physical realities impact the way we think about uh, um, jurisdictions and what belongs to whom and so on? It's a very good question. And actually, I'd like to hear Shankar's view of this, because to some extent, I I wonder how, as as an oceanographer, do you find it frustrating that the law offers at best a very imperfect description of what the ocean is in terms of its various divisions and zones? So some of the ways in which the law divides the ocean, even lawyers now recognize, has almost no bearing uh, connection with the physical reality of the oceans. The oceanic zones that the law creates are zones of jurisdiction. So there's the territorial sea, there's the exclusive economic zone, there's the deep ocean, there are divisions between the shallow seabed, the continental shelf, and the waters just above it, and between the deep seabed and the waters just above it. And we have separate... How How much of the oceans are deep sea? About 40% of the ocean is within national jurisdiction. So 60% And is... 60% is beyond uh, national jurisdiction, of which... Uh, and, and, it, and the division is slightly more complicated if you try to divide it between water and land. So how much of it is common heritage of mankind, which is the deep seabed, and how much of it is uh, the commons, but the free sea, which is the, the high seas. And how much of this understanding is recent versus being very old, uh, Shankar? I mean, just this understanding of what... Uh, what and how much is known about the oceans? What's the dispersion like? What are the different subsystems? Because you know you've been, you and your community have been grappling with maybe mapping the oceans into different territories for a bit. Well, if you look at exploitation of uh, ocean circulation for trade, mm. it goes a long way back. Of course, I of course. mean you have a seasonal. Reversal in the winds and currents. No, but understanding of uh, continental plates and all that has been there for a long time. Not that no, it long. depends on what you mean by mm-hmm. long time. I mean, it's not more than uh, 50, 50 years. years? Yeah. 50 years. 50, 50 years. Plate yeah. tectonics is not more than, not beyond the 1960s. 1965, I think, is right. finally when. Right, 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 yeah. right. So how does that impact your, uh, how do physical realities change the way you do things? So they're producing difficulties. So what happened in the 1960s was, so the deep sea bed only came into focus as a place in around the mid-19th century. The first thing that happened there was the laying of telegraph cables, uh, followed by telephone cables, followed by, in the 1930s, the exploitation of the shallow seabed for oil. But in the 1960s, 
with along with many other major discoveries there was also this the the rediscovery of the fact that the deep sea bed had mineral deposits and lawyers um, economists politicians everybody got quite excited about the these, these this massive wealth that might lie below the ocean that could be tapped for uh, industrial development so uh, large tracts of fields of manganese of copper of cobalt things that were important for industrial processes then um and what happened was and again here uh, i'd love to hear shankar's view is that to some extent led by the interests of states and politicians lawyers offered a redescription in legal terms of what the seafloor might look like and what the possibilities of tapping its wealth might be that were really not based on a very good understanding of what is actually there so it turns out that we have an entire convention on the law of the sea that offers a certain idea of what lies at the ocean floor which is already which was already being contradicted by things that were being discovered as the convention was being negotiated so one of the to give you just one example the entire convention was built on the idea of the seafloor being essentially a vast site of a plain field that contains manganese nodules uh, but as the negotiations were going on it was discovered that actually there are large hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the oceans there are vent communities the law of the sea convention doesn't directly account for those that there are certain formations forms of life and so on which were not thought which were not known by they may have been known by scientists to exist but they didn't percolate into the consciousness of the politicians and the lawyers so they don't they're not accounted for in the description of the seafloor that exists in the law and so now some of the work that the international seabed authority which is based in jamaica has to do is to try to integrate new scientific understandings with the older law which was finalized 50 years ago and try to make some sense of how it's possible to carry on economic activities that the law provides for with protecting the marine environment according to these new to new knowledge which is changing very very rapidly but the whole idea of exercise of this nature is to kind of carve up oceans by sovereign in, 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 in sovereign terms to some extent yes so until the 19 uh, until 1945 most of the ocean was understood to be a single undifferentiated global commons uh, all except narrow zones of national natural uh, of national jurisdiction about 3 miles out each state claimed as its own waters but beyond that the rest of the ocean was a legally a unified whole uh since then we've seen extension of national jurisdiction much further into the ocean so most states now claim 200 miles of the waters and at least 200 miles of the land below the water as zones of national jurisdiction in some cases much more than that but what also happened was in the 1960s there was a real fear that the entire ocean might get carved up into giant national lakes so each state would claim jurisdiction up to the midpoint of the ocean that didn't happen what we do have is actually as 60% of the ocean still remains a commons and it's now legally protected under international law as a commons but within that there are now schemes for But trying is that to creeping up Or... Yeah, and licenses. So one of the ways in which it's no longer sovereign claims, but what the International Seabed Authority can do, for example, is provide people with commercial licenses to exploit uh, zones that are beyond uh, national jurisdiction. Can can oceans be carved up, Shankar? What's your instinct on in this? Now, obviously, there's some kind of a legal effort here, and a lot of this is going to whatever their perception of mineral deposits down down there and so on is. But carving up lithosphere is different from carving up hydrosphere in some sense uh, or not really not really i mean it's just a definition in terms of latitude and longitude that's it right but uh, and yeah so and how stable are the deeps how stable is the deep sea is that is that churning is that more like solid rather than 
um, the highly turbulent surface uh, areas. The turbulent part, the real turbulent part of the bulk of the oceans is near the surface where the wind directly churns it. Mm. There are regions uh, around Greenland and near Antarctica where you have water plummeting all the way to the bottom. Plummeting, it falls yeah, It down. just goes all the way to the bottom. So it's almost like a, oh, yeah. it's, a, it's, a it's a plummet, so that's yeah. a good word. That is the water that circulates in the deeper seas. All of it happens from there? From Greenland, two places on either side of Greenland and one near Antarctica. So even if you wow. go off Goa and uh, go to the bottom, say 3,000 to 4,000 meters, the water there has come from the polar areas. Wow. But... Uh, and if how much look, of how much of the fact that the surfaces are certain ways a result of the wind, and how much of that is because of light, because of the fact that sunlight maybe no penetrates. light doesn't cause circulation at all. It's basically wind. It's momentum being put in. It's huge. And do you suspect? And we'll go to Murti on this a little bit. Do you suspect that um, what role does light play at all? It's just it it just influences the marine life, or well, it is big in terms of marine life. Because there's no photosynthesis where you don't have light. It's entirely chemical, chemosynthesis. Mm. So it's a world that is completely different. And what is your suspicion, Murti? I know you don't work on things like these, but uh, right at the bottom of the sea, um, because that's one thing that we've been discussing for a little while, um, the pressure levels must be very, very high. Yes, it changes by one bar. One bar for every 10 this meters. This is the most underestimated aspect of uh, the oceans. So if, for example, you want to mine manganese, mm -hmm. these nodules that Surabhi was talking about, you're going to be doing it at 4,000 meters, let's say, mm -hmm. and that's 400 bars. Enough that's to... uh, that's non-trivial. The engineering is very uh, difficult. You think it's impossible? Impossible is a very dangerous word to use in the context of technology. Fair enough. But when you say non-trivial, do you, do you think of that as being closer so to impossible? The question is whether it will be economically viable. It must match the price that uh, you have to pay for terrestrial uh, resources. And that is going to be a big challenge. So the question to you, Murti, is that, uh, you know, these kind of levels, four, five kilometers uh, below the uh, surface sea level, uh, there isn't too much light getting there. Um, do you think... Well, there's none. 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 There's no light getting there. Um, obviously, there would be other sources of light, maybe chemiluminescence and others. Uh, so it's not necessarily dark, but there's no sunlight getting there. It's mostly dark, but there could be other sources of light. Now, can pressure alone cause reactions? Pressure, just this huge mass and volume of... Okay, the pressure alone... No, I, I don't think it can help the... It can favor a reaction, but it cannot initiate a reaction. The reaction, initially I talked about energy in terms of things. There is also something called entropy. Mm -hmm. Entropy basically means, you know, it is hard to separate a molecule, but uh, so delta S, which is delta S positive, is always favored. Negative means it is bad. So when you put a lot of pressure... If you want to make A and B form a bond, then you can force them to come together. That's the high high pressures. They can make them make things happen. People try to do reactions under very high pressures. Mm -hmm. At the same time, that's not that alone is not sufficient. So you just have to have some, you know, the the activation energy. Basically, it is an activation free energy, which is a combination of delta H and delta S. 
So the delta S can be favored by high pressure. Delta H you just have to provide in terms of heat or, or something else. So, so the pressure can make new reactions happen. Definitely, I think it is a, a super high pressure. So you can get a lot of stuff. Things happen. And do you think that just because of the nature of the physical environment there is, and this is not only about the seas, the kinds of the, 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 the kind of elements and compounds that might be at the bottom of the sea would be very different? I mean, would, do, you, do you suspect that might be the case? You know, I have zero idea about uh, what is there under the sea, you know. In, in the, uh, so, but the thing is, these are things which are not known. Right. So we say, okay, we study reactions under high pressures. Mm -hmm. That is basically, we translate that information to the, okay, there is a high pressure under C, so maybe the these kind of things can ha could happen. But then at the same time, there are so many other things are uh, already there, right? There are a lot of uh, metal, the metal particles, all kinds of things there, which could, you know, ca catalyze some reactions. So these are just, you know, uh, Predictions with zero backing. Right. Can I just ask one or some other question which yeah. was related to these two people? Absolutely. So they were talking about seabed. Okay, it is an immovable object, but there is also something which is all constantly moving in the in the ocean. So there are a lot of uh, marine organisms moving from mm -hmm. Australia to America or something like that. So when you are eventually you are going to divide this whole sea into twenty-five different countries. I guess the marine, these, I mean, I think this was sort of to answer, they would probably be a part of the commons, um, but I would let you... So, so what to happens that. to all those uh, animals? So everybody yeah. gets... There are no Australian whales and American sharks. Yeah, so it is, but, how, do you, how do you divide these How things, do you carve you know? that How up? do you claim this is mine, that is yours? So that's the difference between content and carriage, but... No, it's, it's a very, very good question. This is the kind of, you know, this is exactly where all the problems begin to arise because one of the big questions So after, in the 1960s, when, you know, everybody was busy trying to carve up the oceans, this was the first question. And what, how do we decide what lies where in the ocean? How do we decide what lies in the water or on the bed? How do we decide what falls within national jurisdiction, what falls outside? Fish move from here to there. So there are a number of rules that uh, that we've come up with, lawyers have come up with, which, which are all imperfect rules. To give you just two examples of imperfection, mm -hmm. one is that, that there's a rule that says that in the zones within national jurisdiction, most living creatures belong to the water, not the seabed, except for two. One is corals. Corals, are because they're sedentary, belong to the seabed. Now, if you think about it, this is crazy because corals sometimes grow to very great heights. Sometimes they might break the surface of the water. They live in the water and yet they belong to the regime of the seabed, not the regime of the water. Similarly, legally, crustaceans are described as species that are sedentary, that don't move and therefore belong to the seabed. But of course, we know crustaceans are prawns and crabs Pons that they swim. Crabs, yeah. yeah. So this is the, the so this is why legal reality sometimes does not correspond to natural reality at all. So, but how how did these come to be? This is just this is this is through the process. So there was a ten year process of lawmaking, and a lot of this was political wheeling dealing. So there's a really interesting political history to why sedentary species become classified as sedentary species and what gets classified as sedentary within that, which is different countries essentially wanting to, there are certain, so states can usually exercise some greater degree of control over their continental shelf than over the waters above. And Shankar, in your case, when these Kelvin and Rossby waves, obviously some are fast, some are mm -hmm. slow, depending on whether they're going polewards and equatorwards and so on, are they moving marine life along with them or it's you think of this largely as movement of water? No, there's a current. 
there's a current mm. and obviously that with the waves uh, there will be a current mm. i'll give you an example uh you are putting in energy only at the surface yeah. the bulk of it yeah. almost all of it the wind doesn't affect anything below directly below about say 100 meters that is where the direct effect of the wind is confined but uh, there are currents at uh, great depths how how deep i mean they go all the way to the bottom right i mean you have water sinking in the seas of greenland and uh, they well up somewhere in the pacific right maybe a few hundred years later right the water has to get there physically right <laughs> but uh, normally this is thought of as being a very slow waltz i mean the classic picture is that of a conveyor belt and that was drawn by wally broker mm-hmm. uh, several years ago i think 1991 or something but uh, the world doesn't behave like that but these are really slow systems then not necessarily that is how we t- are constrained to look at them mm. i mean i don't think there is any way of separating the this circulation which takes place on the time scale of a few hundred years from what is happening on a day to day basis there's no way you can say look mm. this is the long term thing and this is the weather there's no way to separate them but this notion that the long term thing is slow is not quite right because uh, you have this energy being put in a momentum being put in by the wind at the surface and uh, they create these waves but they are not necessarily going just horizontally there's energy being communicated mm-hmm. down so using certain instruments you can actually track that and the pacific is a long enough basin to give you an idea so in the western pacific you have a wind disturbance you can track it at 2000 meters uh, below in the eastern pacific i think the question is how much of that em- ends up impacting or influencing in a reasonably direct way the marine life whether the currents are there yeah. and if a current is there at 20 cm per second a burst lasting for maybe 10 days uh, i will be surprised if some small uh, creatures at the bottom can resist that current mm. right if but I these are going to be bursts so it is not a slow waltz it's bursts and then quiescence then again bursts and then again quiescence but we have very few measurements how quiet is the ocean there's a lot of sound a lot of noise and you want to pick your signal you have to do a lot of but is uh, the deep sea reasonably quiet or i'm not sure i don't think so yeah sorry i mean these are it's, this is there are interesting histories here right for a long time it was thought that the deep sea has nothing right you can't how can anything exactly. live has there nothing, right? that yeah that that life can't flourish in this world of darkness a world of high pressure it was actually telegraph cables and the laying of them and then they had to sometimes these cables would break so they had to bring up these cables and when they brought up these cables from great depths they realized things were actually sticking on to there was uh, you know they found crusted uh, life forms hanging on to these things <laughs> and they discovered barnacles for example yeah right. barnacles and exactly that's how that the uh, tintin thing comes blistering yes, barnacles blue blistering barnacles yes. they are blistering yes they are billions yes but they're not blue the blue is not very blue clear to not, me yeah. i haven't <laughs> seen the blue ones i'm waiting for that and then i think was am i right in thinking it was darwin who thought that if there would be life it would be prehistoric in form and yet when they actually when things came up they decide they realized that there's no such you can't assume that everything at the bottom of the sea is much older than everything because no, life spans say. change quite a lot even within there can be short lived like organisms there can and there be, can be it's not like evolution doesn't happen in it, deep exactly, sea it happens yeah. everywhere and that and currents as and amongst other things are things that cause dynamic processes of change at the bottom of the ocean as well you were saying something about it yeah. it is not as it's not static as it was thought to be 
and it's still very untapped Maybe right 150 so years back. we still know it a lot less i mean we still know about what 10% of the sea is well mapped at the, in, in a in a real sense we have maps of it but in very, a very little i mean you just have to go back a few years yeah. it was difficult explaining to people why in today's era where google tracks you by the minute hmm. you have no idea where mh370 went yeah absolutely but the ocean floor yeah. is like that you are looking it's worse than looking for a needle in a haystack yeah you can burn down the haystack and hope to find the needle yeah but what do you do at the bottom of the sea yeah you have no clue yeah and yeah yeah. I, my, yeah my question was in terms of temperature what would be the temperature of the ocean under you know the is it 2 uh, degrees or so no what's that 2 degrees celsius so it is colder than uh, surface yeah so uh, if you are going down say 5000 meters that would be the temperature hmm. and what happens at uh, those kind of temperature levels what sorts of yeah that's uh, my question was you know for chemical reactions if you have the is temperature is that a conducive yeah, environment yeah, so so the, there is not enough energy for a reaction in terms of the temperature well the temperature you will get even in the polar regions 2 hmm. degrees i think you do get uh, in the polar seas what is more uh, difficult to find i mean you will never get in the unless you go down deep enough is the pressure mm. and mm. that is what makes the ocean so different i mean there are hydrothermal vents where the temperatures yeah, will right. be much higher as well and the pressure There's small places small again places, you have yeah. to hunt for them it's not yeah. easy exactly yeah you stumble it, upon them and as it uh, literally i mean it requires phenomenal amount of luck to find them yeah what's the significance of temperature murti for uh, reactions like Uh, well if yeah. yeah if you want to uh, break a bond you need energy yeah that energy one way to produce this energy is by heat so yeah. that's why temperature is important so when mo- molecules collide the energy has to be transferred from a to b so now for this simplest reactions for the most simple elements and the smaller compounds and so on at what sorts of uh, uh, w- w- what are the typical transition energies or what what kind of heat or temperature do you need see for example if you want to at room temperature everything seems to be stationary if you have right. a bottle of acetone in the la- in at home it is our gasoline in your car it remains as gasoline right but then if you heat it to 500 degrees or something it is it will not be gasoline it may be falling apart so that's where the temperature is going to be playing a, a, an important role because more basically it is a vibration right a and b are vibrating between certain lengths we call them as a bond when the length is less than this much right if it is more than that much we will say the bond has broken right so the more energy you put into the bond it is going to vibrate more and more that is basically making somebody mad so <laughs> you know how much uh, you have to say abusive words to make somebody mm. uh, get mad at you some people if you if you look at uh, maharishi or something you may be getting mad why i am she he the other guy is not getting mad so it is uh, in that sense the the energy plays a role in making this vibration basically vibration gets stronger or longer with uh, heat so that's why the vibration is required and this is irrespective of whether these are gases liquid solid i mean the same template or model yeah uh, that's the, this, this, the, this is the basic uh, the model or theory that we use in understanding chemical reactions and do solids react i know we've been thinking about the ocean yeah solids will react you know the, you know if you are putting the light energy in terms of light mm-hmm. we are not putting the energy into the vibration 
we are putting the energy into the electronics. So we make the more the way a photon goes. Yeah, and... when the light goes, the electron goes from one orbital to a different orbital. So that means we have put 100 kilocalories onto that molecule, but that 100 kilocalories will have to come back. So it is not going to keep it there. So what will happen is it will redistribute the energy, the molecule by itself, into various vibrations. So if you have redistributing, so what is going to happen is 100 kilocalories, some bonds will get 20, some of them will get 50. When it gets 50, that will break. So again, it is a question of the, the, the vibration is the one which is doing the uh, breaking. But then when you put slowly, then you will have to heat it. If you put a huge amount of energy, the molecule will not keep everything 100 kilocalories in one place. It will redistribute very quickly all over the place. So this is where the, the timing and all these things are important. Then if you had to increase the yield of your reactions, what would you do? If you just wanted uh, um, well, if you want more to, output. Yeah, if you want to, when I have, at the beginning I mentioned molecule will collide. When they collide, they are going to collide in all kinds of different directions. Only one or two of them will result in a reaction. So if there are 100 collisions, there are something called the effective collision. The collisions, not all of them are very effective in terms of a reaction. They may be effective in terms of, you know, transferring energy to each other. But a lot it, of that is just dissipated or it yeah, doesn't so go there to are the... going to, in a molecule, the number of vibrations depends upon the number of atoms. It is, it, there is a rule. What is that rule called? Well, 3 to the power of my, uh, 3 n minus 5 or something. 3, I don't remember completely, 3 n minus 5 or minus 6, depending on symmetry of the molecule. Mm -hmm. So the 50 kilocalories of energy that you put in, it will get redistributed all over this 50 vibrations. Only one or two will be the useful one. So all of them will not lead to reactions. So that's where the, if you want to e increase the yield, somehow you have to make... Which means all, that for the same amount of energy input, you want more, yeah, more output. Yeah, you want to put the energy into the then right you'll have to right be more bonds. directed, more specific. So the collisions will have to be, the, in terms of orientations and geometry, they have to be perfect. It doesn't happen. So, so what do you do? You get into the realm of photochemistry, you send very directed beams. No, the problem with this energy distribution is the energy distribution is faster than a chemical reaction, redistribution. Oh. Hmm. So that's where this picosecond, femtosecond, all of these things becomes important. Maybe like uh, 30, 40 years ago, there was a feeling that we could put the energy specifically in a particular bond. You might have heard of this infrared spectroscopy right. that measures the vibrations of each, where the, the vibrations are for a particular bond. If you excite the molecule with that particular wavelength, you can uh, put the energy into that bond. Okay, they thought, okay, if you put that on that bond, you don't have to heat the molecule to 200 degrees. Yeah, you can just attack only one bond. Yeah, so if you have only one bond which is activated, so then it will break. But uh, other bonds will not even know that this particular part of the molecule has been uh, 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 subjected to some... Looks From the sounds of it, it looks like it's difficult. Very specific way yeah. of doing it. But unfortunately, you know, and then after they did all this stuff, infrared lasers and all these things, a lot of money was put into that. And all the oil companies, they thought that if they start doing it, then they may lose their income. So they really wanted to get into that. They put the money. 
But unfortunately, very quickly, they, it was found out that if you put all the energy into one bond, it will redistribute itself all over the place. So before the bond breaks, if you put 25, this 25 is spread into five other bonds. Right. So there is, this bond doesn't even have 25 kilocalories. Right. So, but then um, you need to just put 50, and you know it, it must be a little bit of a trade-off, catch-up game between. Well, it, yeah, you, you I can, mean, being directed surely helps in making reactions happen, right? Well, if it is redistributing itself faster than the chemical reaction, then you just put your put slightly more energy. What's so that? there will be redistribution, of course, but it'll it'll, it'll propagate out, right? It doesn't get redistributed. Yeah, how fast it propagates? That's the most important. The propagation is fast. See, there are now we have got a competition between propagation versus chemical reaction. Right. If propagation is faster than the chemical reaction, you know you are not the yield is going to be low. You will get something, but the propagation is stopped, then the reaction will go faster. Will, right. You know, you will get more products, but the 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 propagation is much much you know faster than expected so it was sort of you know the money dried out people stopped doing uh, research research on the topic and then now it is sort of you know we don't do that kind of stuff anymore so, well the same thing happens in the oceans i mean you put in wind energy at one place it's communicated elsewhere instantly or very fast. not instantly there is a finite time right because all information is carried by waves and depending on the kind of wave it is and where it is, the propagation speed varies. But information is not confined. I think there was something quite interesting. There was a container ship carrying Nike shoes that capsized in the middle of the ocean and the shoes all sort of spilled out. And then they reached quite, quite they, they ended up sort of reaching quite, you know, they landed in very different parts. This was in the Atlantic and they ended up on different shores and so on, which helped scientists at one point map how these currents were, how these waves were moving in different parts of the ocean, where these shoes end up, you know, reaching which which, which beaches, when, at what time and how long did they Yeah, take? I mean, if you were to drop all the sh yeah. shoes at one place at one time, yeah. you would think that uh, they will all travel together, but that does not happen. No, they went all They would the go place. together for some time, but then they disperse because yeah. of chaos. Yeah. So it's difficult to, uh, if you wanted to intentionally cause a sea storm at one place, can you do it by applying a crazy amount of energy or a wind gust or something like that? Or I mean, I think I'm trying to see whether there's a parallel case of the thing that we were trying with more well, chemical reactions. Energy is can you cause a sea storm? Energy is contained in these natural systems far exceed any of the nuclear weapons available today. So there was this notion of. Uh, capturing the energy of a hurricane or dissipating it using nuclear weapons. Mm. I think President Trump talked about it recently, mm -hmm. but that is not, uh, that's not going to happen. So, for example, when nuclear testing happens in some part of the sea, um, at times, do you, I mean, there, there is stuff in the press worrying about whether that would cause um, chaos or whatever storm in the seas, but is that a real risk? I don't think so. I don't think the energies are anywhere near what uh, even a moderate earthquake would release. But yes, the fallout of the nuclear reaction, mm. uh, the radiation, mm. will go all over. What was uh, uh, created at Bikini Island was there all over the world. I mean, the atmosphere just takes it around circulation. Uh, residence time is uh, of the order of days. So it's... Yeah. Within a week, you have that Bikini Island effect all over the world. You can't stop it. 
I mean, New Zealand and Australia brought cases against France for nuclear testing that was almost 3,000 miles, at a distance of 3,000 miles from the shores of these countries. But they said that they were directly affected by the radiation because it got the what it, it reached them. So, you know, by there's the radiations no, or why are radio, they? They said radioactive contamination of the waters for yeah, many examples. Of shore testing. One is yeah. playing out now mm. in uh, Australian bushfires. Yeah. Uh, New Zealand tourism is being affected. Yeah. You had the stubble burning. Yeah. Shorter distances, but the same thing. Yeah. You had Chernobyl. And yeah. depending on the wind that uh, goes either east or west. And the economic consequences differ, depending on which direction the radiation goes. If it goes uh, to a poorer country, there's less impact. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is brutal. Yeah, yeah that's a brutal fact. The tsunami cost much less yeah. to the insurance companies than did uh, oh, yeah. Katrina. The damage was uh, a different scale, but uh, in economic terms, no. Yeah. So where are you currently on this process of uh, coming up with the legal framework? What are the open conceptual questions and where do you think uh, things are headed? I mean, there are lots of questions in terms of what is happening in law at the moment. There are two big lawmaking exercises going on for the deep oceans. One is uh, the UN is trying to formulate an agreement to regulate biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction. Uh, the idea is... And, and at the same time, the International Seabed Authority is trying to finalize a seabed mining code. The idea for both is how to combine ideas of economic exploitation of oceanic resources with also preserving the ecological fabric of the ocean, which are two completely and increasingly antithetical goals. It's very hard to think of ways in which you might actually use the ocean uh, with, without actually destroying its right. ecosystems. But also, because we know so little about the ocean, we don't know what the knock-on effects of any of these things might be. One of the, for, for seabed mining, for example, the International Seabed Authority used to take the line that actually it's much safer than mining on land because it happens three miles under water. It's too far away to cause any but real is effects. But is that inaccurate? It's not accurate. They've discovered, I mean, scientific evidence shows it's impossible to predict the extent to which the impact will be contained. What so, is your instinct in this? Uh, I know you mentioned that uh, mining is likely to be tricky, and but what is your instinct on the either the unintended consequences or some knock-on effects of mining the deep seas? Well, one thing that's being attempted is an environmental impact assessment. Mm -hmm. The idea being to figure out what damage would be caused. Now, I think it's meaningless. Mm. I would just assume that everything that's there is going to be destroyed. Mm. So right. suppose you are mining a one <laughs> square kilometer of uh, the seabed in the Central Indian Ocean. I would just say everything there is going to be destroyed. Mm. The key question is, does it have any impact? What else does it trigger? No, that's the question. Suppose you go 10 kilometers away. You're mining a one square kilometer area. You go 10 kilometers away. Now at that depth, the ability of an organism, it barely moves at that depth. You have to uh, use up a phenomenal amount of energy to move even inches. Mm. So it's not going to travel 10 kilometers. So ecologically, my gut feeling would be mm. that at some point they would just uh, go in completely different directions. What so would go in completely different directions? There are two uh, species, even if they are from so the same source. So your point is that, so that's an interesting point. So your point is that the amount, the kinds of species are likely to be highly localized at those kind of depths. I would assume that they're like the, localized. The, the regions they roam are likely yes. to be, in, at least in land terms, likely yes. to be much, much smaller. See, in the plains, for example, that is where you get what you call civilization. Yeah. Mm. Because you're forced to interact mm. much more. 
where do you get tribes you get them in uh, difficult terrain or in isolated places like islands yeah now here isolation comes because of the phenomenal amount of energy you have to expend in order to move so if your life span allows you to move maybe a few inches or maybe a few meters at most why would you be having any impact say 10 20 kilometers away so i would say okay i'm mining a 1 square kilometer area instead of trying to figure out what damage it's going to cause i would say everything in that area and to some distance around it is wiped out so even the 60% area is potentially well, highly so, differentiated well, every 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 square kilometer half a square kilometer it, is different well it is different but two or three so one is that nodule mining means that you have to have you know it's not it's it's like mining fields right so you can't just gather nodules from 10 feet or from uh, something the size of this room the field the nodule mining it fields have to be are, large. they have to be long and uh, all the systems they've developed so far is essentially imperfect systems that just troll a very large area and collect nodules and bring them up so one is that a very large tract of land will get disturbed each time and the second is plumes because you're bringing a lot of things up and then midway you're junking half of what you brought up because you've been sifting as you're bringing up and so the mud and the dirt and so on will be sifted so the plumes is something that again it's not very clear how far they can travel what are the kinds of effects they'll produce how long they'll stay so there's also this is the problem with things not we, we don't know how things move in the ocean very well how long they'll be suspended clouds of like of of plume, which will be then disastrous for life forms that exist in those those zones it's the problem of not knowing exactly what the impact will be so i think you're exactly right that that, that there's the sense that of course beyond the impact site uh you know even 10 or 15 kilometers beyond the impact site the results might be quite different but the impact site itself is very large when it comes to certain yeah, seabed so mining plants at the seabed i would say everything yeah. is wiped out the yeah. plume is much more difficult to figure yeah. out and i don't think you will ever be able to map the ocean bed or the ocean currents at those depths to the extent that legally you can prove anybody wrong that is going to be it's uh, how impossible how do you how do you even map them you just send solar See, you can waves map and terrain you can map terrain to an extent hmm. so it's topographical yeah kind that of map. you can manage to a reasonable extent what is uh, if it was doable ms370 debris would have been found exactly so what is it that you are going to put in that is different are you going to put in more resources more money into saving uh, nematodes in comparison to those lives that were lost when that plane went down which country is going to do it <laughs> so that is the catch so i would just say everything there is destroyed the effect of the plume is much uh, more hazy and the simplest scenario would be to assume that it affects a larger area mm. so if the seabed is affected if you say mining 1 square kilometer if you say 10 square kilometers of the seabed i'm going to assume is affected to varying degrees and that 1 square kilometer is wiped out then the plume is going to affect much more say 100 square kilometers over time as it disperses it's hardly going to have an impact that and, is and we are thinking of thousands of square kilometers not one or 10 when we th- talk about seabed mining so finally what's going to determine it is economics not environment and the simplest uh, example that can be given is fracking yeah yeah in the united states and president obama giving the nod to deep sea oil drilling yeah despite all of the east coast so if president obama did that then i think you have your answers there i mean what's if the, it is yeah. needed it will be done 
What's kept Seabed Mining from taking off is exactly that. It's that it's not an economic proposition. Uh, it, there was an expectation of demand for seabed minerals in the 60s, which just petered out in the 70s with land strikes and with actually exporting uh, mineral exporting states getting very angry because they were going to lose the economic earnings that they have uh, through the land-based mining sites. But now what has happened is so... so the, how, the, how do you differentiate land and sea? Is it as straightforward as... Uh... Is a commonplace perception. Do you mean land below water or land above water? So when you say seas, what yeah. do you mean legally? When, when I say seas, oceans? I mean the bit that is... So when, I talk about, when I'm talking about land just now, I'm talking about the continents, right? The things that we live on. And the sea is includes the water and the seabed. But of course, within the sea as well, there's land and sea, right? There's the water column and then there's the floor of the sea below. Right. Uh, which are legally two separate entities, but of course are quite intertwined in terms of the ecosystems. Interesting. What are the open questions for you, Murthy? In, 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 I'm not in the question of seas, but because this is something you know, that these, these two have thought about. Even in the, in the, context, in the context of, of reactions uh, and interactions. In the context of ocean. Okay, so the question is, do we really need to explore the the ocean bed for minerals and whatever else we need. And first of all, economically, whether it is feasible, the only thing that from the from the, the context of today, uh, the ocean seems to have is oil. So really, do you want to go down the uh, ocean, explore for oil? But even that oil would be close to the continental plates. Yeah, there's oil exists in the continental shelf, not on the deep sea floor, which is why actually national jurisdiction stops at the end of the continental shelf. There's no interest in... So there's no oil in deep sea? None that has been discovered. I think it would be, I mean... The scientists because organic, will tell us, organic but matter does not exactly. decay and so on. Are we, are we being sure. accurate? Uh, I mean, you take India for example. In the 60s, it was Ankleshwar, 10 meters yeah. right. offshore. In the 70s, it was Bombay High, that was 100. Right. And KG Basin is 1,000. But that's right. all, that's depth, but, but that's all still continental shelf, right? That's not the abyssal no, plain. I think KG Basin, they are going deeper. Into the abyssal plain or into the so, slope? Uh, into the slope, yeah. Slope and margin all have oil, but not beyond them. Because eventually some trees, something would have had to get decayed, get buried for it to become oil in the long run, right? From a Well, you have to factor in plate tectonics. Right. That's moved things around, just as... Yes. Are there could be gas hydrates, things like that? Gas hydrates are there, but yes, uh, yeah. they look to be much more difficult to extract yeah. right. than uh, conventional oil. So you're right, Murthy. I think one, so economic imperatives will probably decide whether or not this happens. So if, if you are going to be looking for oil, maybe in another 20, 30 or 40 years, if there are other sources of energy, you know, which we are uh, you know, uh, hardworking to figure out, like photo, the, you know, it is much easier probably mm. to convert the solar energy, solar sunlight into more useful energy than, you know, going down the ocean and then looking for some oil. What the, what the ocean has, though, is rare earth minerals, which are components of various renewable energy, these things. So things, and they're rare earth literally because they're rare on the land, yeah. whereas there are larger pockets have been found off in, just off China and Japan in the ocean. So that might push seabed mining to the extent that these become Principal Even to have renewable solar plates, you probably need to yeah, mine you the need seas. Lithium, selenium, that sort of. Uh... So, if it is only the question of energy, there are other options, you know, which seems mm. to be. I have a very strong feeling. Maybe in another 30, 30 years, we may not depend upon oil for energy. Mm. There is a good a good chance that other other sources might become. But stored and primary energy is different from secondary energy, right? It's yeah. a little difficult to 
um, have, well, an primary... have an automobile running on solar energy. I mean, because you need to store energy and run. Well, you could go back to coal. <laughs> yeah. I think it might become cheaper to mine coal in Britain. Yeah. Today, a dead industry. Yeah. <laughs> mine coal in Britain than to mine in the sea. And then the mill, I mean, the miners of Yorkshire might find their great-grandchildren going back down the mines. <laughs> it might just happen. Yeah. It's interesting. We only changed to an oil economy from a coal economy literally at the start of the of the twentieth century, right? Exactly. So within a hundred years, we might be back to. And if it is the yeah. source we are looking for is the minerals yeah. from the seabed, you know the minerals are required only for the purpose of the modern uh, way of living, which involves a lot of materials business, mm. and that demand depends upon the population. If the population starts going down, mm. which is likely, then we may not have to dig all this stuff. You know, this is, uh, you know, I'm just again, once again, I'm talking as somebody what about outside. What about specifically in the world of chemistry? I mean, uh, what, what what are the open problems in this context? For example, specificity, the specificity question that we were thinking about a while well, ago. Well, the chemistry plays an important role in, you know, almost anything in this, sure. you know, in this world. Materials and pharmaceuticals and uh, even energy, all of these things, you know. So in one way or the other, it touches the chemistry. You know, we don't touch the law or anything, but it is a question of uh, uh, survival depends upon the uh, in sign. Uh, you know, That's on fine. Chemistry. I think, for example, this question that you touched upon a while ago, Murthy, of this rate of propagation versus rate of reaction. Yeah. Do you think that is, it is what it is, or do you think there's likely to be a solution to that puzzle or that yeah, problem? Yeah, okay. so I, I was just coming to that question of, so if you want to make a pharmaceutical or you want to make a computer cheaper, any of these things requires having the commodity commercial uh, basic materials cheap. Right. Mm. Cheap means make it uh, more, or make it more and make it. Uh, the time is not that important. Faster or is not that critical. But getting more and more of this in a cheaper way makes it a uh, the pharmaceutical drugs cheaper or your polymers cheaper. All these kind of stuff. So the thing is, at the end of it, is going to depend upon how to catalyze a reaction, catalysis, right. which you know, which again requires a lot mm. of this. Uh, minerals and all this kind of stuff. So the mo most of it will be di directed towards catalysis mm -hmm. and the specificity and a lot of drugs, for example. They are all optically active. Not all, but most of them. What do you mean they're optically active? Optically, they are chiral. Chiral means Chirality. basically like left and right hands. Yeah, the stereochemistry. Yeah, question. what left yeah. hand does, right hand cannot do. Right. You know, but for, for a kid, maybe left and right hand looks the same. Right. For... Uh, but they are not the same. They are very different. And the famous uh, uh, one of these drugs, which was made about maybe 1960s, which was sold as a mixture, which is one of them is poisonous, another one is actually a good one. This is for the, the drug for uh, early morning sickness. Uh, I forgot the name of that. So one. the DL and L config configurations will work very really differently. Yeah, they are different. So yeah. it was sold as a single drug, and then they found out People who took it, they were not, the children were born with uh, deformities and all So it's not just the wavelength in that sense, it's also the, the, the polarization of light that ends up impacting. Yeah, well, those things are, those are chiral drugs. Right. So the goal today is making chiral drugs in one optically pure form, which is not easy. If you look at the Nobel Prize that are given in chemistry, every, you know, five, five to ten years, you will see somebody getting a prize for making a reaction. Uh, optically pure. So that is one direction it will have to go. And Optic why is that not easy, Murthy? 
because when you have you know when you do like isn't it a question of shining just no, one uh, kind no. of polarization no on so, compounds and one kind of reaction happens the the reactions when you have do do it for example when you produce mass produce uh, something uh, left hand and right hand 50% will be left hand 50% will be right hand you cannot produce only right hand only left hand so yeah, if you can produce only the question hand, is why why is that difficult because the cha- the, the by statistics you, that will be what what will happen 50 50 that is the way things will ha- say so if you are you know without a these mark, are these are these are outputs i know you're looking for a whiteboard but it's not here yeah but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah okay if you if so, you're looking to these are outputs of a reaction these okay. are products of a reaction in so, that reaction if they are photo activated then you know you just shine one kind of orientation of polarization and you yeah. get only one it looks so, like it's difficult obviously uh, yeah the, the pol- polarization you know the it is a possibility then again some of these things what happens is the the when you use a polarized light for producing optically pure material the yield is extremely small 2% 3% like that 2% 3% a drug for which you paying 2 dollars it will become 2000 dollars who wants that okay right. so what happens is when you have molecule a the second molecule can come from the top or from the bottom so it will be 50 50 so there is no way it is going to be coming only from top right so if you want to make it coming only for the top you have to do a lot of th- uh, uh, things around the bottom to make sure the bottom side is blocked that that requires some kind of ingenuity and then the right kind of catalyst or all this stuff that's where the you know quite a bit of science uh, goes in that sounds tough it's not tough it is, uh, it is it is difficult i would say i i use <laughs> difficult a little bit more, more moderate word than tough you know yeah. so <laughs> okay it's difficult so, yeah. just one other thing when you are talking of mining the rare earth mm. minerals particularly cobalt mm. is one that is sought mm. after it might turn out to be cheaper and more efficient to scavenge cobalt yeah from used batteries and what is needed is an appropriate uh, economic scheme yeah so you don't have to recycle every battery all the time you collect 10 and you hand them in mm. it's probably going to be difficult to recycle the small ones and here i mean children's toys for example they have those small batteries they are more uh, difficult to recycle they are more difficult to dispose of but a typical mobile battery it should be possible to pull things back that would reduce the demand straight away I, i think that's exactly right there's a lot of now people who are challenging seabed mining and so on are saying that we haven't really properly thought about exactly what you were saying about recycling about ways in which we can actually make better use of existing resources without trying to now open up this new frontier for this uh, yeah. yeah because even if you were to mine and say you produced an inexhaustible supply of cobalt and lithium where would you dispose of the batteries mm. yeah so eventually you have to collect them and if you are doing that you would have to be really crazy to throw away the rare earth minerals mm. so that would become a vital source what's the future shankar will end with that where uh, is, i know you mentioned that the oceans are chaotic and though there are some trends and tendencies at work uh what is there to look forward to if you fast forward several thousands of years i don't know well jules one spoke of journey to the moon and to the center of the earth Moon you think you're getting there? Can we get to the I center of the earth? I don't think you earth? will get anywhere near that. The problem with the earth sciences it's is the, that... It's the pressure problem. Oh, it's, information is indirect. 
you can't see anything even seismology you are only looking i mean measuring some waves and then your you are aligned uh, on longitudinal estimating. waves as opposed to electromagnetic waves that's your difficulty everything is indirect there's nothing in control i mean there's no laboratory where you can perform an experiment and experiments in biology but you can't just drill a hole all the way to mm-hmm. the center of the earth uh, 6000 kilometers well i give you one example uh, yeah. this was an actual practical example when the first exploration for the kg base in oil started there's a company british company that was doing it for reliance and uh, they did it but then they gave us a call to nio and uh, my mentor and i we got to hear of it uh, they had picked the season that they naturally thought was the best march april to do the drilling because the winds are weak and that was the time they could get a stable platform that right. was the assumption because you look at it now if you have drilled a hole in a wall if it is slightly off the normal you can imagine what it does to the drill bit and to the wall mm-hmm. so it has to be straight right perfectly perpendicular right now here you have a drill that is about a kilometer long and a bit at the end of it so if that drill is being buffeted it's not a very pleasant circumstance <laughs> now what happens in the bay of bengal is that that is the time of the year march april when the current of the east coast of india is at its peak we knew that so if they had just called us earlier we would have told them so their question was simple i mean should we have expected this the answer to that is yes you should have expected it mm. but then they had their ways of handling but shankar it. oceans are just 8 or 9 or 10 kilometers in a 6000 kilometer radius right uh-huh. yes so where have you gone you haven't done much you're celebrating james cameron in 2019 going down to the bottom of the mariana trench mm. there's a probe that's gone out of the solar system mm. yeah so it's a different game it's completely indirect and it's impossible i told you impossible uh, you don't like that word i don't like that word because then it's question uh, is, of is what most, is the information is that you require most of the difficulty at the level of the oceans after you crack the first 8 9 why do we have to go via the oceans why can't we just drill a hole from somewhere where there's land all the way to the center of the same earth? problem you just can't In the 60s, they tried to just drill a hole down to the mantle, the next layer below the mm. core of the Earth, and and they lots of incidental benefits were produced. I think they ended up perfecting the drill ship and things like that, but they I don't think they ever managed to get to to that second layer that they were trying to get to. The core of the Earth is two more layers. Obviously, then that. there's magma and all that. Yeah. And any such experiment will have to be a collaborative effort, like the CR and so on and all those experiment in. or ligo yeah i don't think it's feasible for any country when there may be countries that think they can do everything on their own i mean hallucination is not uh, is not be, a crime well you can't discount it but uh, the brutal laws of economics take over what's the future sort of be willing with that well it depends on whose future we're thinking about what's the future for human beings i think the answer actually was quite pointedly provided by this group of scientists who've left a plaque at one of these is it an Icelandic glacier saying that so the glacier was is receding very very quick is moving much faster than they thought it would and the plaque says this is the year a 2019 we know what has to be done only and this is to the future so only you can tell us if we actually did it so it's up to you know to that the future of the human race depends on how we address climate crisis the future for the earth there was a wonderful piece in the atlantic that said you know human beings are only a small they're not even an event in geological time so the earth will carry on but our race might go as dinosaurs did yeah and we are all organic matter so yeah. maybe we just become crude oil or yeah. something in the yeah. long run 
will be one. That's what they said. One thin strip of laminate that that accounts for all of the time that we've occupied uh, on the earth. And that crude oil won't be economically extractable. <laughs> yeah, it's not enough. <laughs> even even if at certain... six billion is not enough yeah, to produce no, much crude oil. It no, requires yeah. a lot more. Yeah, that's the thing. We won't even be significant enough for that. Not not even a veneer. Are you? I. What is your sense in the future? Uh, this is, I know it's not a chemistry question. Yeah, but, uh, well, I, what's I'm not completely sure, you know, what is the uh, what is that we want to do? You know, most of the the current human society, they want to have everything for themselves. You know, the, whether you are from uh, any country, they all think that the whole world has got a lot of stuff. I should be the first guy to go and grab that thing for myself. Is that our goal? Or as a human being, we want to be a little bit more, you know, satisfied, and then focus our thoughts on uh, other questions, which is a little bit more different from completely... Less material and energy Yeah, less, materi- <laughs> less materialistic, but more uh, apt questions, I think, uh, which for which we don't even have the right answers also. You know, I mean, there are many philosophical questions which for which the answers are, you know, are not that easy. But everything is not doesn't have to be materialistic and scientific. There are other things, you know, the whole world problems could be solved by slightly different approaches also. That's what I think. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm not going to be the volunteering for going down the earth, to digging for a zinc or something, <laughs> or going up to the moon and looking for gold. You're happy where you are. I, yeah, I'm happy where I am. So, so, yeah. Terrific. I think that's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it, and we look forward to having you soon again. Thanks for coming. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.